Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Screen Strong Families podcast, bringing you the best solutions for parents who are serious about eliminating screen conflicts in their home. This is Melanie Hempy, and welcome, everyone. If you're new, we're so glad you found us. And everyone else, welcome back. Oh, my goodness. As you know, I have made, I think, every screen, parenting screen mistake in the book. This is why I'm up here talking about this. Um, if you're new, you can read all about my story on our website, but you know that my son got very addicted to video games when he was growing up and I had no clue what I was doing. So that first experiment didn't work out so well. And now I'm doing another experiment on my younger kids. And what we're doing now is that we are trying to see what it's like to be a teenager, to live life as a teenager without video games and smartphones. <laughs> so lucky for my younger two boys, they are 16 now. They don't have smartphones and they don't get on social media. They don't spend all their hours playing video games. Instead, they are doing all these great things outside, you know, playing music, reading a ton, doing board games, and sometimes just being bored but they have so many friends. And this is what I want to just say just for a few minutes before we get started, that I had no idea how social a teenager could be. <laughs> so let me just tell you what happened last night. You know, we have school, we're in school, we're back to school in person and all this. So they have tons of homework. And all of a sudden, I look at my back door, and there's just like a stream of kids coming in the back basement. I'm like, wait a minute. You know, I know they're working on a paper. They have all this homework. And so I go downstairs and I'm looking around and we have a ton of teenagers in our basement and they're all very quiet. Nobody's talking. Everybody has their homework out. And I look at my kids. I'm like, what are y'all doing? <laughs> and they said, mom, we're having a homework party. <laughs> So I think this was just so funny because it just hit me how teenagers and kids really in general, you know, they just want to be together. They just want to be in each other's presence. And so we just love our screen strong life. And actually, I'm just loving this whole idea of a homework party because they were actually doing their homework. Now, of course, you know, 20 minutes goes by and somebody says something funny all of a sudden they start laughing. So we still had to kind of monitor a little bit because they did have a paper due. But anyway, I'm just so thrilled that y'all have joined us today. And I'm thrilled because I think if I had listened to our guest when our oldest was in middle school, our lives would have been totally different. If you're having like that gut feeling like I did, that something just isn't right. You know, it, I, I just had this gut feeling that something was up. These screens, I couldn't put my finger on it. I couldn't figure out, but they were just making my kid really different. <laughs> it's like I would just lose him to his game. Or if you have a middle school kid who's addicted to Fortnite, or if your daughter is like dating her smartphone, I mean, honestly, these girls and these phones, you know, it just drives us nuts. So if you or if you have a teen who's just kind of going downhill, our guest can save you a lot of pain, you're gonna feel so validated, and you're just not going to be alone anymore. And we're just thrilled that you're here. So today we are talking with my good friend, my brilliant friend, a mental health expert, integrative psychiatrist, and author of a very famous book called Reset Your Child's Brain, a four-week plan to end meltdowns, raise grades, and boost social skills by reversing the effects of electronic screen time. <laughs> so let me introduce to you and welcome my very good and brilliant friend, Dr. Victoria Dunkley. Welcome. Thank you, Melanie. I'm so happy to be here. Good. So when I read reset your child's brain for the first time. I was just totally hooked. I don't know if you remember, I called you. I probably wanted to get on an airplane and come visit you. Um, in fact, actually, I think I was in California at a conference and we did meet and I did, did remember. And yeah, and I did meet you. <laughs> actually, that happened. But I was doing conferences for parents at the time. And I was ordering like cases of your books. <laughs> right? I remember that. Yep. Yeah. And we had such a great time just connecting and meeting and discussing all this stuff. Cause what I was seeing on the, you know, boots on the ground where I was, plus everything that I went through, you were just bringing all that medical 
expertise to it. And with my nursing background, it was just fabulous to find someone like you. And you were so fun. And remember then we ended up doing a conference with Paula Poundstone. And that was really fun. Yes. And I remember thinking that we used a lot of the same language and we're saying a lot of the same things, even though prior to that, we didn't know, we hadn't known about each other prior to that, but we were both coming to the same conclusions and seeing the same things and kind of describing things the same way, which to me is very telling. Yeah. And it was just so validating for me to hear you say, and then of course, I think probably for you to hear me kind of give the reports of all the parents and it just, you know, the truth just doesn't change. And that's what's really cool about this whole issue and all the stuff we dive into is that opinions, you know, they kind of come and go, but the basic scientific truth around this topic never changes. So, so give us um, a little bit about your background, how you got passionate about this, and then we're going to dive into this first part of your book. Okay. Well, it all started, gosh, almost 20 years ago now when I was first finishing my training from residency and I was working with a lot of group home kids, um, kids who were in residential treatment centers, foster, foster kids, um, and they all had histories of abuse and neglect. So they all would go into this state of fight or flight very easily. And I noticed, and some of them, you know, were living on site where I was working so we could control everything and we could see everything they were doing. So I noticed with those kids, they tended to, um, if they played any video games at all, they would go into fight or flight afterwards and they would, you know, throw a chair or hit somebody or, you know, and be crying hysterically. And it was very obvious that they were impacted by the video games. And so I said, why are we letting these kids play video games? You know, they have enough problems. And one of the houses agreed to remove all video games from the house for a month. And they were tracking incident reports and lo and behold, the incident reports dropped by 30%. And these were this um, that that particular house was the highest level of, of acuity in the whole state. So these were kids with significant problems that had a 30% drop within a month. So then I started to kind of realize that even patients in my private practice were showing these same kinds of reactions. Even if they didn't have a history of trauma, they kind of looked the same as these other kids that had trauma that were in hyperarousal all the time. So I started doing the same intervention with those kids, whether they had ADHD or anxiety or tics. And I started realizing it worked across the board, no matter what they were presenting with. Um, And then I started, you know, doing it with friends, neighbors, other people's kids, you know, colleagues, kids, things like that. And it just worked every time. So I kind of started to realize it was really about the brain being in this state of stress and needing to reset. And the only way you can do that is to pull away all this intense stimulation. So you actually just saw this going on around you. You decided to just give this a try and we're just like pretty amazed at the results. Right. And I started to realize, you know, as a child psychiatrist back in the 90s um, and the early 2000s, we were still using like short-term or short-acting stimulants like Ritalin. And with Ritalin, you see kids go into kind of a state of hyper-focus. And then when it wears off, they often are crying and um, weepy, very moody. And I was seeing the same thing with screens. It was the same thing. So I kept, you know, I started to think it's acting like a stimulant. And then we also, with with, um, drugs like Ritalin, we'd see ticks. You know, there's an increase in ticks. And that's what we were seeing with screens too. So I knew it affected dopamine. And I knew it affected, you know, was affecting their arousal levels. So what did you do at that point? Then you just started diving into the research and then started thinking, hey, I'm just going to write this book and explain everything. Yeah. I I mean, really, I didn't, when I first started writing the book, I was just going to write it on my own experience because it was such, um, I would see such dramatic impacts, you know, everything from their mood to their grades going up, ability to make friends, ability to make eye contact, creativity, leadership, all sorts of things would happen. So when I first started writing the book, it was really, there wasn't very much research when, um, when I first started. I was just going to put a couple studies in there. Um, and then the research kind of exploded while I was writing the book. And it took me an extra two years to write it just because I started incorporating all the research. And the, the research was just matching what I was seeing, but it definitely helped back up everything I was saying. Now, isn't that cool that you like saw all this and you just kind of had that gut feeling that there was all these connections. And then all of a sudden the research is like validating every single thing that you're thinking and everything you're seeing in your practice. That's got to be a really good feeling. So 
back up a second and explain. Let's talk about this electronic screen syndrome, right? You've come up with this term, I guess. Talk about how you came up with that. And I don't know, I just think it's really fascinating how even just a, a moderate use of screens like can produce this. So yeah, let's just chat about that a minute. Okay. So the reason I named it, you know, kind of coined this syndrome was because I was seeing so many kids who were misdiagnosed and were either being medicated or over-medicated or mm-hmm. they were in treatment or receiving some kind of services that weren't working. And I felt like it, you know, the root cause was being missed. So that's kind of why I named the syndrome. And the other reason I named it was because it kind of causes a constellation of issues that are all related to hyperarousal, but it can look different in different kids. So that was the other reason. It was just kind of to give it an, you know, an umbrella term. Right. And it's such a great term. I love it. Electronic screen syndrome. It's it, because it just, um, again, it, it puts words to what's actually happening because this is so new because we, we just haven't had to deal with this in our culture really until the last 20 years. You know, we, none of us grew up with this problem. And that's what's so hard for parents today. They think, well, I grew up with video games and, you know, come on, you can't be addicted to these things. These things can't really hurt you, but they do. And even moderate use can, can start to trigger this. So let's explain or, or start with the hyper arousal state. Explain exactly what that means. Like if a kid wakes up in the morning, they start playing Fortnite or they're playing Minecraft because, you know, they made their bed. So mom lets them do this. And don't worry if you're a mom out there that has let your kids do this because we've all done it. <laughs> we, we, we all think that this is what we do. We reward our kids with this stuff. But then they go to school and you get a phone call at lunch to say, you know what, your kid is, you know, poking somebody in the eye or they're not behaving. We had to put them in the principal's office or they miss recess, which of course is the worst thing in the world that can happen for a lot of reasons. And, you know, maybe you need to think about taking them in to get them evaluated for ADHD. So explain what has happened in their brain and why they're hyper aroused and what the stimulation pathway is. There's a, there's a lot going on, but basically screen time does act like a stimulant and stimulants increase arousal levels. That's why we're drawn to it because it's, it's stimulating. It's exciting. You know, we're, we're naturally are, are as a being, we're naturally drawn to things that are stimulating, but normally, you know, in a healthy situation during the day, you'd have varying levels of arousal and you might have, you know, increased arousal while you're exercising or things like that. And then as the day winds down, you know, arousal goes lower and then you're, you should be in the lowest level, obviously, when you're sleeping. And you might have occasionally have a big burst of stress or fight or flight if something stressful happens and you need a little bit of increased arousal to deal with that stress. And obviously in the old days, that fight or flight was really for running from predators, you know, yeah. fear of being attacked and you had to defend yourself and you you discharge that energy with you know a big physical discharge of either fighting or fleeing and obviously that doesn't happen these days but unless you're in a war situation or abusive home i guess but you know obviously things are that kind of stress is happening on a day-to-day basis now so what happens is with any kind of st- screen stimulation is that it's not just one thing it's not just the content it's not a lot of people think oh it's just you know video games or violent video games if you stay away from those, you're okay, but that's not the case. It's actually a number of different things that contribute, and a lot of it doesn't have anything to do with content. It has to do with the screen and interacting with the screen. So this, the just the the tone, the light from the screen, which has a lot of blue and white tones to it, is stimulating. So that tells the brain it mimics um, the light from the sky. It tells the brain it's time to be awake and alert, and it shuts off melatonin, which is our sleep hormone. That in turn disrupts the body clock, which does all these other things to the body, increases inflammation, and it kind of flattens that curve. So normally your arousal should be like kind of a nice sine wave, like you're aroused during the day and then it goes down nicely at night. Instead, everybody's just kind of flattened and kind of and elevated. But also we have the intense sensory stimulation. So there's a lot of, you know, bright, vivid colors. Um, There's a lot of movement on the screen scene changes, scrolling, clicking, a lot of um, sensory overload that also is very arousing. Then a lot of times 
especially teenagers, they're multitasking. Multitasking also is is um, raises arousal levels. And then the interactivity, you know, every time you scroll, click, swipe, anything like that, um, that's also raises arousal. That's why marketers want to use that because that keeps the person on the screen. So all of these things increase arousal levels. They start to stimulate the reward pathways, release dopamine, which eventually um, become desensitized. And then when you do this day in and day out, it becomes chronic stress or chronic hyperarousal. And that's where the brain really starts to malfunction because instead of just having occasional stress here and there, the blood flow actually starts to shift from the front part of the brain to the more primitive, deeper parts of the brain. And it's basically like a short circuit. So they're not really, your blood shifting, I think this is really fascinating. It, we need, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but these teenagers and these middle school kids, they need as much blood in their frontal cortex, right, exactly. as possible. Right. So. We all do. <laughs> well, we all I do, do too. <laughs> Oh, please tell me. Yes. Oh, no. But the blood is leaving the judgment center of your brain. This is not a good thing. Right. And stress actually damages the brain. It, it damages our ability to um, the parts of the brain that help short-term memory, retaining that information, working memory. So we know that kids who are under chronic stress, you know, their brains are smaller. There are certain parts that aren't, don't work as well. And we all know the experience of being stressed and not thinking as well. That's right. If, you know, you, you can't. Yeah. You can't. You when can't. you're in that fight, flight, stressful thing that you're describing here, it's, it's, you, you can't think clearly. And you're not supposed to be able to think clearly. I mean, this is when you're in a survival, like you said, if a bear is chasing you, mm-hmm. right? We're not worried about our grocery list the next day. Right. <laughs> we're not, not thinking, supposed to be. Yeah. You're not reflecting. You're not thinking forward. I wonder what's going to happen if I don't do my homework and I stay on this fortnight. You're just like your brain doesn't even know that you're in school. Your brain just thinks that you're fighting this battle. Right. And I think it's interesting how it the stimulation really happens with social media too, that it's not just a video game. But answer this. There's this one question that, you know, I know people are listening right now and they're thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. This is different for my kid because when my kid plays, they get really quiet Mm -hmm. and they're not, you know, aroused at all. And, and I know that they are, um, but the way it presents, of course, you may have a kid who's throwing the controller, who's yelling a profanity or screaming at their screen or their little brother who's about to turn their computer off, right? You have those reactions, but in the in these young, I don't know, like middle school kids or a 10-year-old, for example, and a mom will call me and she'll say, well, my, my daughter said he has ADHD, but he should play video games because it really helps relax him. Mm-hmm. So why do they say that? That's a really good question. So I think what happens is depending on what state the child is, is kind of at their baseline, right. the, the, it can be relaxing. Just like if we watch, you know, a lot of people watch TV. I do, you know, we watch TV to relax and kind of wind down. And a lot of parents do say that about their kids, like it, they need it to wind down. It, it helps them be still. So the question then becomes, even if they can be still right then and, and you know, seem like they're relaxed, a, what happens after they get off? And B, mm-hmm. what is the cumulative effect, even if you're not seeing the immediate effect, you're still right. impacting their nervous system in a cumulative sense? Well, and I think you can be very stimulated on your screen, but still look like you're so right. in the flow, right? And in the zone that it looks like you're relaxed, but but your brain isn't. Right. So just because your child is not you know, jumping around and throwing things doesn't mean that they're not stimulated. I think that's what I've, I have yeah. realized. Yeah. They're in the zone and they're focused on what they're doing, but behind the scenes, their blood pressure is up, their pulse is up, you know, they're, they're in a higher state of arousal. They're just hyper-focused. You know, I keep thinking of that Ritalin example. When you give right. a kid Ritalin, all of a sudden, you know, they, their handwriting smooths out. They're very focused. They can sit down and read. you're like, oh my gosh, this medication's working. But then when it wears off, they, you know, they look awful. And then okay. over time, we know with, even with, you know, things like Ritalin and other stimulants, they tend to not work over time. They, the kid tends to become more right. dysregulated over time. It's not a sustainable it's thing. It's not sustainable, so like, right. Right. And especially when you bring in 
you know, video games and social media and all that, it, there's really nothing sustainable about it. I mean, like my son went to college and he just couldn't keep, you know, his life in order. He couldn't finish his classes because he just had to play video games all the time. So, I mean, it's kind of a pay now or pay later thing. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about what happens with the eyes and the brain and the body and the physical things. But before we do that, let's touch on the difference between passive screens and interactive screens, just so people who are listening can understand what we're mostly talking about here. So give us the difference and why is that important? Okay. So what I was noticing when I was, when I was doing the, the reset or the, you know, the four week screen fast was that it really, they really need to get rid of all interactive screen time for it to work. And if I let a little bit of passive screen time, like a couple movies a week, not a lot, just a little bit, the reset would still work. If we allowed any little thing in, even the Kindle, it wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. So I started to, you know, really realize it was really the interactive part. And, and then when I was writing, I started to find more research that really agreed with that showing there's a few studies like comparing TV exposure right before bed versus the computer. It was like 30 minutes of computer time compared to two hours of TV mm-hmm. and just 30 minutes of computer time before bedtime changed the sleep architecture. It changed mood regulation as well as cog- cognitive ability the next day. Just one exposure, 30 minutes, wow. one exposure compared to TV, which affected sleep a little bit, but it didn't actually change the sleep architecture and it didn't have any impact the following day. And the reason why is because they're not interacting. And so what I think that means, it's like when you're watching a show, it is you're just watching, you're passively watching it. Most shows also have a stopping point. That's true. And I think that's really important. Yes. Back in the day when, you know, Brady Bunch was on and all those kinds of shows back then, they were 30 minutes long. Right. And that and, and it's like the TV industry knew that was an okay amount of time, then you need to get up and go outside and play, right? You need to move. Right. So now with Netflix and binging and all this kind of stuff, you literally can watch TV for five hours. And of course, that's not good either. But the interactive nature is what you're talking about. So those are things, you know, like video games and phones and even Kindles. I think iPads, honestly, I think iPads are one of the worst worst. inventions. The worst. (laughs) It's the worst. Really? You think the same thing? During the pandemic, I just tell families, if you can't do the full reset, just get rid of the iPad. I mean, just, just doing that alone helps. I mean, it's just, it's, it seems to be the most addictive. It's the most convenient. It's just. It's invasive. It's, it's everywhere. Invasive for every, yeah. every, every member of the family, you know, parents yeah. included, it just, it just does too many things too well that it's just. Right. And it's the size of it. Mm -hmm. It's just too, um, it's like smaller than a laptop. I don't know. The whole thing about the iPad is there's nothing good that's going to happen on the iPad. Just like nothing good ever happens after, you know, 2 (laughs) a.m. Yeah. Teenager. Um, Nothing good. I think, I think we'll just make that statement right now. Nothing good happens on an iPad. Right. (laughs) Not even homework. Let me tell you. Right. It's not where you want to do your homework. So that's the difference. So we're not talking about TVs and all that. What we're talking about is um, these interactive screens. And so walk us through what happens when your child sits down and, you know, they have to get their bag of Skittles or something, right? Because they're always having their blood sugar problems when they're on their marathon screen mm-hmm. things. But explain what happens just from like the visual cortex and with the eyes and then kind of go into the physical changes that start happening in their body. Just an overview, just an overview. Well, the, the eyes are actually a, a direct extension of the brain. It's the only part of the central nervous system that's exposed to the outside world. So sometimes people say, you know, there's a lot of studies showing that there's actual brain damage from screen addiction. Wow. And people say, well, how is that possible? We're not ingesting it. But it's because right. the eyes are really literally part of the brain. So they- okay, that is like, well, you have to just stop a minute. I, <laughs> that is just so cool. Like, I, I don't think, I mean, I read your book. I've actually read your book a number of times. And I I just need to pause on that. That is fascinating. I, I know that just if you hear things, you know, you don't get hyperstimulated, right? If you're just listening to music or something, but your eyes, because your eyes are an extension of your, that's, that's yeah, really, very really sensitive, good point. Right. Yeah. And it's not just the visual pathway. So even blind people can be affected by screens. 
so it's not so there's the visual pathway which also you know can be very stimulating and then there's the non-visual pathways which affect the body clock okay and really throwing off the body clock causes brain inflammation and it it shifts hormones not just stress hormones but thyroid and your sex hormones and everything else gets suppressed so it Mm -hmm. really throwing off the body clock is really really damaging wow so what happens when they, okay, their eyes, they're watching the screen, then what happens? These, the, these impulses or stimulation is going into like the limbic area of their brain. Right. And then, so all these fight or flight reactions are going on The blood pressure goes up, pulse rate goes up, breathing goes up. Um, and then they're, you know, any, what, whether they're, it's social media or video games or whatever you're doing, you're releasing dopamine each time. So each of these little... Um, activities gives you a little hit of dopamine, which is what keeps you there. And then your body's very still. So like you're inducing this state of fight or flight, but then the body becomes like Chris Rowan uh, talks about it being a physical restraint, just sitting there. And you can, you know, we're much, you can tell like we're much more stiff by the end of the day if we have to be on the computer versus just doing paperwork. It's way worse. Even though you're sitting in both situations, being on the screen really makes you still. Yeah. So then you get this mismatch of like stress energy and being still and it's just horrible. So there's no discharge of that energy. And then when you get it off, that energy has to go somewhere. So it either gets built up and it comes out as, you know, a meltdown or rage or, or it gets suppressed and it turns into an anxiety, but it's all the same chemistry going on. So it actually causes anxiety too. Absolutely. Because anxiety is, is really from stress hormones. So like kind of the underlying neurophysiology is the same, but the way it manifests outwardly is different in different people, depending on, um, I, I think that a lot of girls end up with having anxiety and, and the boys kind of end up acting out more or girls might, you know, tend to get more depressed where boys might just be more irritable but it's all the same underlying neurophysiology. Yeah. So there's this mismatch. And I like the I like that word. I, I think that's a really good descriptive word. There's so much arousal and energy happening, but then there's nothing happening to expel it and get it balanced out again. Right. So they're not moving. So they're not getting up every 20 minutes to run laps around the block. Right. And I know that a lot of parents tell me, well, if I can regulate, you know, he's better if I can get him up every 30 minutes off of his game and have him, you know, run around outside. And so I guess that is one way to management. But then I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, but why would you want to do that? And secondly, if it's really that bad to have to do that, then they shouldn't be doing it. And thirdly, that's going to last for about a day. And then you're not going to be able to do that because you're going to get busy. And, you know, all of these kind of behind the skies idea, like, well, can he play for mm-hmm. 20 minutes and then go run two miles and then come back? Yeah. But the compliance on that just isn't going to be right. there. I mean, I guess that's one way to manage and it's it. It's really, but it's, and it's really a lot more exercise than parents think, you know, oh, if okay. you really wanted to try to discharge that energy it's really like hours of exercise uh, a day. In comparison, you know, it's not the a, amount. It's not a walk around the block. It's like okay, it's a lot. Yeah. You know, I have I have one patient that, who's a young adult right now, and she um, she was heavily addicted to video games, and she's still working on that whole mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. But she swims for at least two hours a day. Oh my goodness! And so the problems that we used to see a few years ago are much better now because she's got such a rigorous exercise routine. Wow. Who does that? I mean, very few people yeah. are that disciplined no. in the exercise piece. Well, in the exercise piece in the classroom and all is so critical. I mean, I remember when my kids were in the, um, I think it was the fourth grade or no, 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 it was the third grade. And they were so excited because at, you know, before math, after English, they got a break to go literally run around the track for like, 10 minutes and then they came back in and did math and they just did so much better mm-hmm. on their math. I mean, the teacher just said how much better that is to interject that little bit of exercise in between the classes. And all I remember about that year was that was my boy's favorite thing to do was to run around yeah. the track, <laughs> you so know, cause sad. they knew they just, 
Yeah, it is very sad, right? They just needed to get that energy out. And the way that our brains develop anyway, from the back to the front, that cerebellum area, that movement center, all that, it just makes sense. I mean, yes. they're little, they have to get their energy out. And this is a really good way that you describe this in here. And for, for y'all listening, this book is so good. The whole first part of it goes through all the science and all the reasons for all this. And the second part of the book that we'll talk about next time is all about the reset. And Dr. Dunkley recommends a four-week reset, which is very parallel to our challenge. Our challenge is similar. We just start you off on a week, you know, just a seven days to get you started. And then you, our goal is for you to get this book and to finish through the month and all with that. But just wanted to throw that out there. So let's let's talk about the fact that the brain doesn't always know the difference between a real or a perceived threat. I think that's really interesting how the brain reacts, perhaps, like you said, in this mismatched level. Right. <laughs> it's like overreacting because in video games, for example, the developers know that when you are fearful of losing your life, that produces about as much, what, adrenaline that you can possibly right. <laughs> reduce. So even though it's just a cartoon, and even though, like with Fortnite, everybody says, oh, Melanie, Fortnite's okay. They finally came out with a game that is just a cartoon version of Call of Duty. I'm like, whoa, you know, your kid's brain doesn't understand that. The brain, that part of the brain, the fight flight part of the brain doesn't understand that you're not really in a battle, right? So it's responding as if you are, even though we know they're just sitting on the couch. Their brain doesn't really know that. Right. When the primitive part of the brain is activated, the brain doesn't care. It can't care. It's not supposed to care. It's trying to survive. So it's not going to mm -hmm. try to discern whether this is a real or perceived, you know, just like with a mm -hmm. nightmare, you can have a very strong reaction because your brain thinks that you're in, you're in danger. That's a really good point. That's a really good example of that. And so this is why kids literally will wet the sofa. Like I've, I've called you before. I'm like, Vicki, you're not gonna believe this mom told me her eight year old, you know, is wetting the sofa. And, and this one family that went through our challenge and she just called me in tears saying, I'm just gonna, I just gotta thank you so much because now we have a new sofa and he hasn't wet it yet. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, is this our, our level, right. our litmus test? Yeah, is that the bar? So explain why that would happen for a child not to even be able to get up and go to the bathroom. Well, I mean, part of it is like the more engaged they are, the less likely they are to go to the bathroom, right? We all see right, that if you're right. trying to potty train your kid. But eight years old. I mean, eight years old. Right. Come on. He should be. Yeah. Right. But it just shows you that those higher functionings and planning and thinking about, you know, how to take care of your body or hygiene, yeah. all those things go out the window because right. you're just not in that state. You're just right. really just trying to survive. So anything extra like that, just let it go, including letting your bladder go. It's a really good example of how it takes over their brain. Right. And just takes over. Right. It's just too much. And if you think about even, you know, like say a, a child's addicted to Minecraft or something, they're still being bombed. Even if you're like thinking, oh, it's not a violent game, it, you know, or I guess it could be, but just let's just say they're just yeah. doing the creative part of it. And you just think, oh, they're just being creative. But their nervous system is being bombarded by all that stimulation. And that is still a bombardment. Right. And it drains right. the mental and emotional and cognitive reserves. So when they get right. off, they don't have any reserves left. So when, when kids, even when they watch cartoons or something in the morning, you're draining a little bit of their reserve before they even start their day. Or if they, you know, when parents say, oh, I let them play a little bit when they come home so they can before they have to start their homework. Well, you just took some of their reserve away. You know, it's much better just let them play, you know, play outside or something. Right. To get their energy out so they can focus better on their homework instead of using that reserve to focus on the video game. Right. Really. And you can see, you know, when you go into that fight or flight state, you're more defensive because that's what the survival mode is, right? You're defending yourself. So that's why the child or the teen or whoever, they're more defensive um, they snap at you more. They don't want to do anything you're, that you ask of them because it's too much of a, a demand. Yeah, they don't have reserves. Yeah, they don't, they don't have, have the reserves, reserves to do it. anything. And they're very right. irritable because there's nothing left. You know, you're just, you, you just feel drained. 
And the, the frontal cortex, their judgment center and all that is not fully connected yet. So they don't even know how to pretend like they have the reserves for it. You know, they can't even over like compensate for it because right. what you see is what you get Right. with kids. They can't, they can't fake you out. They can't fake their brain out. Yeah. <laughs> so talk about the sleep dysfunction a little bit. I, I remember having a mom call me um, to tell me that her third grader was waking up in the middle of the night at two, a, uh, two o'clock. He was literally coming into her bedroom and pulling on her nightgown and begging her to, to play his video game at two o'clock in the morning. Wow. Like she'd put him to bed at, you know, nine, nine 30. Mm-hmm. So what, what is a sleep problem? And I don't know, explain that just a little bit. It kind of goes back to the hyperarousal thing again. So when you're in hyperarousal during the day, when you go to sleep, even if the child looks like they're sleeping for enough hours, they don't sleep as deeply because they're, again, their arousal level is just higher. Um, so their body doesn't relax enough. So we see if you, if you were to do a study on them, you would see more muscle tension, their cortisol would be higher the next day. You know, just all the things that, you know, sleep is healing and restorative. It doesn't happen because you're not sleeping as deeply. Or if you are, you're not spending as much time in the, in the deeper um, stages of sleep. So it's, you wake up, you may be able to function, but you're not as restored. So when you're playing video games, your cortisol is going up. Right. So you have the, the um, acute stress hormones like adrenaline, the, all the fight or flight reactions, and then cortisol as well, which is kind of considered the chronic stress hormone, but it also goes up. And when cortisol goes up, then your serotonin goes down. Right. And there's a whole, some interesting research on the body, how the body clock affects serotonin. So once the body clock becomes desynchronized, serotonin gets suppressed. And serotonin is, you know, we talk about a lot about dopamine, you know, when it comes mm-hmm. to screen time, but serotonin is likely impacted as well. And serotonin is what helps us feel calm and um, have a sense of well-being, be able to tolerate stress, be flexible, um, all those things, you know, that, that make you be able to function well. So if that's low, and we know that, um, you know, when, you, when, when serotonin gets low, we have depression and anxiety. We also know for things like homicide and suicide, serotonin is literally almost non-existent. It's super low, you know, when they do autopsies on those, on brains of either, either um, homicides or suicides or um, just, you know, criminals who are really violent, they have very, very low serotonin. Wow. And that could be a result of this higher stress state. Higher stress. um, Mm -hmm. The the clock is off. So that's why, you know, when parents are saying, you know, my daughter's depressed and she's talking about hurting herself. And then I say, well, this is what you need to do. And the parent says, well, then we're going to cut her off from all her friends and that's going to make her suicidal. But the problem is her brain is not going to get better until it is pulls yeah. away from all that. It has to be allowed to heal. Yeah. It's like a vicious circle. It's it a vicious just, circle. Yeah. And oh my gosh, it's so frustrating. But I, I know parents say that a lot and we just, you know, want to help them so much understand that, that the beginning stages of like the reset and the detox and all that. Yeah. It's frustrating because you're having to break that pattern. You're having to break that, that cycle, but you have to break it. Like it's not going to do it on its own. It's not, the kid's not going to be able to do it. And the cycle all of a sudden going to be like, Oh, I think that we're going to stop making cortisol today and make serotonin. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I keep hoping is that something's, you know, they're going to find some joy in their life somehow and it's, everything's going to work itself out. Right. It's just not going to. And that's what is frustrating, you know, for me as a clinician is like families end up wasting so much time because they keep hoping they can not have to do the extreme of going to a fast, but there's just no other way. You know, we can, you could try medication, you could try exercise and you could try to do all those things, but you, you just end up waiting, wasting months and months and months. Well, and those things all help, but it's kind of like the way I describe it. It's sort of like filling a bucket with water when there's a hole in the bottom of the bucket. Like it will never work. You have to fix the hole in the bottom. And then once you do that, then you can start filling your tank and it will stay. But you have to fix it first. And in chapter three, you talk a lot about the moods and meltdowns and the cognitive concerns, the social issues. This is so good just kind of validating all this science around this. I think it's so critical for parents to understand 
the this education part if because if you don't mm -hmm. then when you're out in the field like at home you know we call it you know right. we call parents coaches and you're out at the big game if you don't know the reasons behind why you're doing what you're doing you won't be able to do it right you will cave in a moment of stress that's yes. right yeah of course because you know but once you kind of back up and understand the rules of the game and you understand physics <laughs> and you understand a little bit about how brains work you know then you're very your resolve is very strong mm -hmm. and like i call myself now i'm the sleep police in our house i know that y'all have heard me say this before i used to be the game cop mom hated that job i'm done with that one i retired and so we don't have games in our house anymore we're done but i am the sleep police and because i know this because i've read vicky's book like five times and i understand and i talk to her a bunch and i am in this field with parents all the time like i understand how important the sleep part is and how restorative it is and how it helps with their learning and just organizing all their information from the day i mean there's so many things we could do a whole nother talk about sleep but because of that my resolve around getting their nine hours which is a lot but that's what it is mm -hmm. for teenagers mm -hmm. is very strong and and so it changes the way we run our house it changes the way i structure things it changes what we sort of allow our ebb and flow to be and so anyway all that just is a commercial to say y'all have got to read this because you'll get your education in place you really have to have the logical part of this understood right otherwise your emotional part will kind of take over say one more thing about that when you read the book it'll be you know kind of explain that physiology stuff i a lot of the stuff i just talked about and then it goes into more depth about how that translates into different symptoms how it translates into mood or focus or right. social issues because in some a lot of kids just have one of those categories you know so it's it's that's why it's confusing but I think mm -hmm. when parents really see, can connect the dots and see how this translates to this is what I'm seeing in my child, then it all starts to make sense. And then they're, then they're, you know, the conviction level is there and that helps with the motivation. Right. Because most of the time you don't come in because you, you come in and say, okay, doctor, I feel like my um, son's fight flight mechanism is triggered and his brain has too much cortisol. Like, you know, you don't say that you come in and you say, this kid, you know, won't come. Or right, right. And he won't come when I'm calling him for dinner. Right. What's wrong with him? You know, yeah. like you come in with these other He's not interested symptoms. In things. Yeah, you, yeah. Yeah. And so some of these things are, you know, the defiance, the inability to make eye contact, these social, what we consider social issues yeah. around being making a sore friends. Loser, all of right. those things. Like just having difficulty on the playground or if they're older, just having trouble getting along with people, being argumentative. Because again, they're just in that defensive state. Right. And they are not practicing life outside of that defensive exactly. state. Yeah. And I think what you were um, talking about earlier about the moderate amount, I just want to make really clear that not every kid is addicted uh, that has, is having all these right. issues with their nervous system because the nervous system responds this way even be well before they're addicted. It's kind of, it's just like a side effect. You know, this is a, it's a psychoactive, you know, influence on their, on their brain and their brain is responding. So, you know, if the child is, has a highly resilient brain and, you know, they may not have as many side effects, they may be able to tolerate a little bit, but most of us in, in this day and age, we don't have enough, our brains aren't as resilient as they used to be. So I mean, Melanie and I talk about this all the time. Most families have at least one kid that's struggling, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean they're addicted right yet um but they're having some kind of impact from screen time right so even outside of addiction this is a really important point that you're making even outside of addiction there's still a lot of things going on that are not good right that are not optimal and if you could erase that for a while and just see what happens when oh my goodness the result of taking these stresses away and if you want to look at it, like, really, we just got to call it what it is. There's chemicals that are being released in their brain. Mm -hmm. So just think about it like that. I remember the very first time I understood this concept about my oldest son, when I found out that there was all 
this dopamine released in these unnatural amounts, you know, because I'm a nurse, I understand about dopamine. I know uh, dopamine. I know about drugs and drug addictions and alcohol and, you know, I know all about dopamine. Um, it's something as a chemical that our body produces, this feel-good chemical it produces. I had no idea that games could do that. Like I was so ignorant around this whole topic. But the minute I learned that, it all fell in place. I was like, well, then of course we're. this is what's happening. You know, these symptoms that we were seeing. But I didn't realize. So for me, that was sort of the breaking point. Once I understood that, then I, I was done. Like it was just a really big deal for me to understand that there were chemical imbalances in his brain. And that's what was causing a lot of this stuff. And I wasn't trying to make excuses for him, but mom and dad out there listening, you have to understand that your kid can't control this. This isn't something he can control. They can't just decide, Oh, I'm not going to let this game, you know, stimulate the limbic area in my brain and, and trigger my fight flight to go off. I mean, they can't just decide that. Right. And, and it's, it's really, it's unrealistic to expect that they can decide that because right. first of all, we have, you know, there's so much social engineering going on for every kind of application we use to keep our eyes on the screen, you know, to have, they call it sticky eyeballs. They want to keep the person on the screen as long as possible because that's how they make money. So aside from that, the frontal lobe isn't, isn't developed in a child. It's not developed until the, you know, t fully till the mid twenties and even beyond. And mm -hmm. that's the frontal lobe is what governs self-discipline. So that's what helps us um, control eating or, you know, just be disciplined about going to bed on time and things like that. So we can't expect a child right. to be able to control themselves when there's engineers on the other side trying to keep them on as long as possible. It's like a big trick. It's just it too is. much, too soon, too fast, too everything. And they're not playing Pac-Man anymore. Yeah. This is not the same thing. Can you um, talk just a second about attachment disorders? Because I'm really big on that. I think this is another element to the whole screen dilemma that we're facing is our kids are just sort of leaving their families. Yes. And I think, you know, that's part of the reset program is really working on, on the attachment piece while you're going through the reset. But it's it sort of happens naturally once people are off their screens, parents included, you know, you tend to spend more time together and everybody's in a better <laughs> mood so that, you know, the bonding parts happens naturally. But what we're seeing is that because kids are on their screens, parents are also on their, on their screens more and, and there's less eye contact and there's less face-to-face -face conversation. And we know that eye contact is the, the most important element in brain development. So a child's brain will literally be a lot smaller if they don't have that bonding and, and the eye contact. But we also know for things like speech and la speech, language, writing, reading, speaking, all of those things are most dependent on face-to-face -face conversation. So we're, we're losing all of those things. But what we see in some families is, you know, it, you know, I was talking before about the kids I used to see that all had been abused and neglected. Well, that's like an obvious example. But what we see now is that everyone's overscheduled. The parents are on their devices, you know, in the evenings and um, the kids are on their devices in the cars, you know, in car, car rides and stuff like that. All these times when families used to talk. So we're losing that element. So it's not necessarily, you know, like a kid from an abused home that we're looking at anymore. It's really like the day-to-day the -day lifestyle that, that we're all living. Or if a parent is just stressed out about another family member or work or something and they're more distracted, you know, there's like a relative neglect of, of the child. So, and then they, you know, the child may go to their device or the parent puts them on their device or, so there's just a lot of disconnect going on. But how, how important is that attachment and like through the different stages of development? Well, it's, it's huge. And we, we also know that um, attachment is protective. So just time spent between just parent child time spent together is protective against internet addiction. We know that, and it, and really protective against all kinds of addiction. Um, and we also know that anything that's addictive really is hijacking the social reward pathways. So those reward pathways that we always talk about when it comes to screen addiction, they're really in place 
to keep the child close to the mother. That's from an evolutionary point of view. That's why they're there. And those are the same ones that get hijacked. So the flip side of that is that if you strengthen those pathways with attachment, you're protecting against the screens hijacking that same pathway. And you're literally rewiring the brain so that the child is is getting that important attachment from the parent again. And then so when parents are really worried about, well, my child's going to lose their friends, they're going to lose all their social connections, you can't just throw them out there and not be with them while you're doing the screen fast. The parent really has to, you know, be right there with them. One parent, oh, maybe it was about a year, probably about two years ago now that I think about it, called after she did her detox. And I think it was like on the third day, so it wasn't after. It was like on the third or fourth day. And she, I remember this very, so vividly because it was so funny that she had a 12-year-old. The first thing he did was he took, at the time they had clock radios still, I guess, a few in their house. He took all the clock radios apart and put them all back together. I thought that was so funny. <laughs> he was trying to find things to do. And then she, but when she called me, she said, Melanie, I, you, you didn't warn me about something. I'm like, what? And she said, what? And I'm thinking, what could I possibly not want? She goes, you didn't warn me how much he was going to talk to me. <laughs> she <laughs> said, I can't get away from him. It was so funny. She was kind of joking, but she said, from the minute I get up, he's in the kitchen, we're making breakfast. He's just talking, 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 talking. Like I had no idea my kid could talk so much. And, and I just thought, wow, that is so cool. And she was really appreciative of it. But that was her her biggest thing that happened. And of course, we, I've heard this over and over and over again, because when they don't have their phones in the car, they talk to you. When they don't have their phones before mm-hmm. dinner and they're not playing Fortnite while you're doing the dishes and they're helping you doing the dishes and whatever, they, they're talking. And this is the way it's supposed to be. Right. And this is what we mean by attachment. I think some parents, when I say that word, they just think that's really weird. And we're like all over controlling and helicoptering our parents. And that is not at all what we're talking about. Right. Parent attachment, parent child attachment is not this over protective thing. It's, it's the social mechanism for getting your kids to be safe and secure in their home environment. They need their village, their tribe. This is what they need. They need protection, of course, from the outside world. That is our job as they're growing up. But Talk, talk a minute about how this attachment continues through adolescence and what happens when it goes wrong in adolescence. Because let me tell you, Victoria, sometimes teenagers are kind of hard to love to death, right? right, so, right. <laughs> so, I mean, no offense to them. Now that I know about, a lot about the brain stuff, oh my gosh, it's a piece of cake, let me tell you. But before I knew about all this, I would get my feelings hurt a lot. But now I know, oh, you just have a teenage brain. But just talk about the attachment. I know I'm putting you on the spot here. Talk about the attachment and how we can still create opportunities for healthy attachment with our teenagers and how important that is. Because if they, it's yeah. not like we get it just when they turn 16, you know, okay, we're done and we go wash our hands. Right. No. And I think, you know, in our culture, there's definitely a trend towards, oh, once they become teenagers, their tribe becomes their friends. And then you can mm-hmm. kind of wash your hands and, oh, as long as they're doing okay in school, I think they're, you know, they're going to be fine. But no, that's not mm-hmm. what happens. And even if you ask teenagers, they will tell you, I, w- I want to spend more time with my mom, but she's on her phone all the time. Or, you know, I don't ever get to see my dad or, you know, they all complain. And, and sometimes they'll, you know, we, when, sometimes in my office, when we're talking about doing the reset, the child will, a, t- a teenager, boys included, they'll start crying and say, well, I know we're talking about all that we're all going to spend time together, but I know they're not going to do it. And it's just heartbreaking. And, you know, and I've never seen a teen say, I don't want to, I don't want to spend time with them. In our generation, we probably would say that. I don't even hear that anymore. Like, it's just desperate for attention, you know, and we know that attachment, I mean, you know, there's volumes and volumes of books written on just attachment and, and healthy attachment and what it does to the brain. But one of the important things it does is it helps self regulation, which is exactly the opposite, you know, of what screens are doing. It's, dysregulation. But but what's happening is a lot of families are, they might be good at the attachment piece when the child's younger and then they just kind of let it go. Yes. Well, they still need that attachment for their self-regulation to keep developing and their sense of self. And when they don't get it, when they're not safe and seen, guess where they're going to get it from? They want to be seen, so they're going to go to the internet. Part of being safe and seen 
is is having boundaries. And again, that you know, the internet doesn't have boundaries. Right. Video games, if they're endless, they don't have boundaries. You know, social media doesn't have, there is no boundary. There's no end. And many kids talk about that, that that's what bothers them is that, you know, it just keeps going and going and going. And it's not just like getting off your screen that that affects. It affects their development as a teenager because they really need those boundaries to feel safe. So even if they do get off, even when they somehow muster up the courage to walk away from their game for the evening or put their phone down, which of course I know that's really rare. Um, where are they going? Right. Cause if their parents are all distracted and not available, then they don't have anywhere to go. They're escaping to what? So they go back to and their they screen. Go back. Right. Yeah. And it's just, you know, they feel a little bit, there's, it's all these like little tiny rejections. So they're, they're getting some feedback over here. Then they go back and they may, may, you know, say they try to engage in a conversation or something with a distracted parent, and then their heart gets broken a little bit every each time that happens, you know, and it reinforces the need that like they have to go elsewhere to get any kind of feedback. And that's why they're posting stuff that's totally inane. Like sometimes I'm like, why are you posting that when I'm working yeah. with teenagers? But then it's because they, they need to be seen and they're not getting that need met. Oh, it's just it's so just, heartbreaking. Yeah. And I, I was so guilty of this, you know, with, with my oldest, I really, really had no intention, like every parent out there, I had no intention of hurting him in any way that I loved him to death. That was the last thing, but I was so frustrated because it seemed like all he wanted to do was his game. And at that point, the way he describes it is there is sort of a breaking point. There is a point where you're done with the family kind of, right? You're done with the real world. You, you live for your virtual family. You live for your virtual world. And in a video game, video games are actually a little bit easier to do that because you have your guild or you have your, mm -hmm. your people in your game on social media. It's a nightmare because it's just, there's nothing sacred and um, there's no loyalty or any of that kind of stuff on social media. But he had gotten to the point where, you know, he left mentally he left he was like oh okay well then i don't need this anymore and we like on the outside you would have just thought we were just the most normal put together family in the universe and we thought we were too so parents out there listen to this think about how much time in fact get a little piece of paper don't use your phone get a little piece of paper and a pen if you don't have one go to the store buy a pen i know people don't have pens anymore around their houses anymore <laughs> get a piece of paper and a pen and keep a little log of literally how how much time you spend talking to your kids it's not as much as you think and it's very eye-opening like vicky's saying you have to get away from your screens in order to do this because we cannot multitask you cannot talk to a teenager while you're checking your email you can't and right. they know the difference, you know the difference, it's not gonna be there. So the most protective thing you can do that, that, that you just said a few minutes ago is to spend time with your kids. And I totally agree with that. I say to all my parents all the time, you know, any screen problem that you're having in your house, you can solve it. First of all, you have everything you need in your house to solve it. You, I mean, no offense, Vicky, you know, we love doctors, all right, we do, but we don't have to get a doctor for all of this all the time. Right. You have everything that you need in your own house. Like I always say, you have dishes to, to do. They have weeds to pull. They have bathrooms to clean, right? So you get them doing their life skills. You get them feeling part of your family unit and you start talking to them more. The problem is you cannot schedule these conversations. The type of attachment that we're talking about right now is what happens in the nooks and crannies of being present mm -hmm. with somebody in your house in your life. And so that means it's in, it's in the car when you're driving them to baseball. I love picking them up from sporting stuff. In fact, my husband does it sometime, but I really like to do it because I get such great conversations <laughs> right when they get Aww. in the car. You know, it, you just get the dump yeah. of what happened during the day. And so I'm so blessed to be able to pick them up from school and I get to hear all that. But then even just while you're in the house and, you know, they're practicing piano or they're doing their homework and they walk in and then all of a sudden there's a thought in their brain in a moment where they say something and then we can talk about it. We always have family um, dinners together and I fight really hard for those. I work 
very diligently to make sure we can all sit down most every day and have our family dinner together. The other thing that I know I mentioned to you before is we have this really cheap and expensive fire pit. And then this year, actually, we just kind of built one. They built it and it was great. A new one. Um, But the fire pit is awesome. It's just a, it's like a truth serum. I think, you know, boys and fire, I don't know, girls and fire, I don't know, but you want to just go to our website and think about, or, or look at different things that we're doing on there to help you with this piece. This is the most important piece of everything that we're talking about. If you can get this attachment piece right, then your screen issues are going to start to fall away because all of a sudden they are going to want to start even spending more time with you than on their screen. Can I say one more thing about what you were saying? It's also important, I think, not to check your phone or check your email before you're about to have that time with your child because then you're going to be thinking about your to-do list and what you need to do. And then you're only half listening to them. So I think also trying to corral, checking email, checking your phone, doing all that stuff, trying to really corral it into ideally, you know, a couple times during the day and it just stays in certain times and that's it. So it kind of helps your brain compartmentalize because they can tell if you're, if you're present or not, even if you're not on your phone right then, if you're thinking about stuff you need to do on your phone, you're still not present. And you're not having, it's not fun for the parent either. No. And I made myself, and then it became a habit when they were in um, elementary school and middle school that when I would drive home with them from carpool and whatnot, I would leave my laptop closed when I came in and I would actually leave my smartphone in the car. I did that for at least the first hour. And then I would grab a, I would get a book. I would be available but I think as adults, I think that we feel like, oh, every minute that we have a downtime, we got to be on our screen. Right. But yeah. if you can just, you know, so I would make myself, it would be so frustrating sometimes because I'm like, oh, I want to go check my text or whatever. But I would just get a book and sit at the kitchen table or I would start to help them. You know, I'd make a snack, I always have snacks, just healthy, you know, vegetables and dip or whatever. And um, they would sit down. That's a big tip, by the way, parents out there. When your kids are in transition times, of, you know, coming in and out from activities or doing this before that. And you kind of got this transition time. If you have some snacks out in the kitchen, it's just a natural time to kind of graze and talk. (laughs) So that worked really well, but it does take some discipline on, on the end of a parent. And I don't want to throw parents under the bus. We are all working out of our house now. It's, it's tricky. Um, Just be aware of it and be, and, and understand, I hope you understand from today, just from from all this discussion that, that we're having, how important this attachment thing is. It, it's as important as I think anything else with this Absolutely. issue. It's, I think you can't, you can't manage the screen times effectively without the attachment piece there. It just doesn't work. So just, it will breed rebellion. If you, if you try to, you know, set up new rules or set up a program without bonding. Yeah. And that just is so counterproductive. And that's, you know, that's why parents are so scared. I always say they're scared of the dark, you know, they're, they're scared of doing that. Um, we have a Facebook group, our Screen Strong Families Facebook group, by the way, if y'all haven't been on that, go over there. But some parents, they're saying, oh no, I'm so scared to take it away because they're going to hate me. And that, that's a problem. You don't want your kids to hate you. And like what Dr. Dunkley is saying right now, your kids do not hate you. They may act like they hate you and they may say they hate you, but they don't. They just want you to pick them, right? Like, like in kickball in third grade, you you know, you want to get picked. (laughs) Right. And I think it's, yeah. And I think take it from a toddler, like if a toddler says, I hate you or, but somehow if when it comes from a teenager, the parent is like, I don't know what it is. It's just like, they can't stand hearing it. Yeah. But you, you can't, as, as a parent, you have to be that good coach. You can't back down and you have to do what you know is the right thing to do. So what, what we're going to do Next time when we have you back, and thank you so much, we get to talk to you again. I'm so excited. We're going to talk about how to do this detox and how um, and what all the benefits are. And we're going to be talking about the changes, you know, in your family and the less stress and more independent kids and more respectful kids. And I love it when you talk about not walking on eggshells anymore and some of the benefits like stronger sibling relationships, all these things that are going to happen when we get this back in balance. So we'll be talking 
next time about part two. So this is our book of the month for, for this month. And I'm just so excited, Dr. Dunkley, my brilliant friend here that you are able to come and, and joining to just join us on this. Can you just think of some encouraging words for parents or I don't know, what are some final words you want to say to our parents listening? You know, the whole thing could seem overwhelming. So I think starting with the education piece and just really learning about what happens in the brain will go a long way because that will help you feel more um, convicted and sure about what the plan of action is. And also just during the pandemic, before I always used to say like, you know, it, it doesn't really work to cut down. You really have to cut it out completely, which is true. It will work a lot better. But during the pandemic, just doing anything is better than nothing. And we do have summer coming up. We may, you may be able to do it then, you know, so just start with the education piece. That's really good. Thank you so much. I'm really such a fan of the education and you have done such a wonderful job with your book. So thank you so much for that. For those listening, you might also want to go to the Psychology Today website and you can find more of Victoria Dunkley's articles on there. There's some fabulous articles on there that have just been, they're just timely, right? You've got a couple up there that just keep coming around. <laughs> and then and then I have one up there too, um, why smartphones are not smart for middle school kids. And that has also gotten a ton of traction, but that's another place where you can go read some of her material. One of the pieces that I've been missing when I'm working with families is really having a community of families to support one another when they're considering doing the reset or going screen-free. So I was really excited to, to see the Screen Strong Challenge come along, and I started to look at the group and see what comments the moms were making. And I was so excited. I was like, yes, because a mom would post a problem. And I would think like, gosh, how would I answer this question? And then like, you know, 10 moms answer in such good ways that only other moms can answer or dads. But I just feel like it, this is a really good compliment to the work I'm doing as well. Thank you so much for popping in there and visiting us in that group. Vicki, we're so excited to have you be part of our little village as we're trying to get yes. education out. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Melanie. I appreciate it and looking forward to the next one. That'll be great. Thanks again, Victoria. I hope all of y'all enjoyed listening today. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends and head over to our website to donate and to learn more about our Screen Strong Challenge that we were talking about today. Also, make sure to join that Screen Strong Families Facebook group where you'll find the support from other parents just like you. Remember, we have your back and we are here to help you. So until next time, stand up for your kids, stand out from the crowd, and stay strong. <laughs>